Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 through 10, in a talk titled, Jacob Sends His Sons Again. In the back half of this talk, he spends a little bit of time discussing typology and numerology and some fulfillments in the New Testament. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 through 10. Today we plow into Genesis chapter 43, and last time we looked at the structure, and we won't go back to that, but we'll begin with the first section here, chapter 43, verses 1 to 10, which I have headed up, Jacob sends his sons again, and of course the passage ends with the sons coming back. Well, let's hear it from the Fox translation. And the famine was heavy in the land. That's a phrase that's been repeated several times. And now here it is again to emphasize that in the land of Canaan, the famine continued. And remember, of course, they didn't know that this famine was going to go for seven years. They thought it was one year. There had been famines before. When Abraham went down into Egypt at the beginning of the patriarchal narratives, remember there are three famines. There's a famine right at the beginning when Abram comes into the land. There's this famine at the end, and there's a famine right in the middle of the history when Isaac has to go to Gerar. These famines didn't last year after year after year, and they have no reason to think this one is going to, but of course we as readers know that this is going to last for a long time. The famine was heavy in the land. And so it was, when they had finished eating the rations that they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Return, buy us some food rations. And Jehudah said to him, saying, The man warned us, yes, warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you wish to send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you some food rations. But if you do not wish to send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so ill with me by telling the man that you have another brother? And they said, The man asked, he asked about us and about our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we told him according to these words, Could we really know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Jehudah said to Israel, His father, Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. So we, so you, so our little ones. I will act as his pledge. At my hand you may seek him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him in your presence, I shall be culpable for sin against you for all the days. Indeed, had we not lingered, we would indeed have been back twice already. Some points to notice about the way this passage starts out. Here, First of all, at the end of the previous narrative, Reuben is the spokesman for the sons, and now at the beginning of this one, Judah is the spokesman for the sons. And we don't have any indication in the text as to why, and yet it's striking that it happens. These two have been leaders in the clan heretofore, 
They both were involved in selling Joseph into slavery. Reuben wanted to protect him. Judah came up with the plan to sell him to the Ishmaelites. But at the end of the previous story, when they came back, Reuben was the spokesman. Reuben said, you can put my two sons to death if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, if we have to go, when we go to rescue Simeon. But now, all of a sudden, Judah is the one speaking. And we can come up with a bunch of guesses as to why that is, but the theological reason for it is the only one the text is really interested in. And it is because Judah is the replacement for Reuben, the fallen firstborn, and Judah is the one who will offer his own life and not the life of his children as a ransom. And so that's the first thing to notice here. Second thing, thematically, Benjamin is never named in this paragraph, in this section. It's only when they actually head off to Egypt in verse 15 that Benjamin is mentioned, and at that time the other men are no longer called brothers or sons, they're just called men. Interesting. But although Benjamin isn't named, he is called brother six times and lad one time for a total of seven times. So if you want to count that up, you'll find it between verses 3 and 8. The word brother referring to Benjamin is used six times and lad once. Lad means young man, up to 20. It also means deacon. But here it means a young teenager, which is what Benjamin was. And it's also interesting that the estrangement that ended the previous chapter seems to have been set aside to some extent. We saw that Jacob said that they had made him childless, which was almost a way of disinheriting them, of rejecting all of them. And now he's called father. He's actually called Israel here instead of Jacob. And I think the reason is that the crisis is kind of drawing them together in spite of the fact that there is these deep-seated problems in the family. So it's realistic. These people do live together. You can't just hold enmity on and on and on and on and on forever. You have to at least set it aside. The pain has receded somewhat. And in order for this story to have more dramatic force, they have to be somewhat reunited because then there's going to be a threat of even greater disunity before the narrative is done. So I think those are things to notice in terms of the change of language. Of course, this indicates to liberal scholars that this is just a different version of the same story, that these two things didn't happen. There weren't two trips to Egypt. There was just one, and it's told twice, so forth and so on. But we don't buy any of that. There's the Reuben version and the Judah version and so forth. That's just... Nonsense. But we do want to take notice of the shift in emphasis. There is kind of a general chiasm here. The father says to go back. After all, when the food runs out in verse 1, and at the end, Judah says, we could have gone and come back twice. It's Judah who says in verses 2 to 5 that we can't go down there because of this threat. It's Judah who speaks an offer to come under the threat if need be offers to die, so to speak, in verses 8 and 9. And at the center, Israel asks how the man learned about Benjamin, and the brothers give an answer. So that's at the center of it. The question of what will become of Benjamin is laid in the center of this, because that's Jacob's concern. So now we can read it. Verses 1 to 5. A couple of things here. Well, 
they finished eating, and so Jacob brings it up again. I think we can look at this the way this works. And he says, go to Egypt and buy some food. See if these brothers still insist on taking Benjamin along. Maybe this was nonsense. Maybe we can get around this somehow. Judah speaks up, and what Judah says is not what has previously been recorded. So used to this, we fail to see it, but in verse 3, the man warned us, yes, warned us, the verb is repeated twice, he warned us extremely seriously, saying, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you wish to send our brother with us, we'll go down. But the man said, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. That's repeated twice. Well, that's not recorded in the previous chapter. Joseph had said, you will not depart from here unless your youngest brother says, fetch one of your brothers. And then he says, let one of your brothers be held as a prisoner. Bring your youngest son back to me so that your words will be proven truthful and you will not die. So they keep Simeon. And they're supposed to bring Benjamin back to ransom Simeon. But now, what do we make of this? There's two possibilities. One, Judah is exaggerating. He's lying in order to scare his father into letting him take Benjamin. Or, this is part of the conversation that wasn't previously recorded. We don't need to assume that all these conversations that take place in the Bible are as short as they're made out to be. Naturally, they weren't. Joseph may have said quite a number of things that weren't recorded in chapter 2, and we don't find them out until now. Or maybe Judah is just explaining the implications of it. If we don't go back with Benjamin, this man's not going to meet with us. He said we had to bring him back to get Simeon, so we just won't get anywhere. I don't think we need to say that Judah is lying or deceiving his father here. But he explains the threat. Israel brings this up again. This time he's called Israel. And I think that we always have to ask why Israel versus Jacob. And I think it's because he is the chief of the clan here. He is probing further into the matter. The fact that the name is used indicates a certain amount of unity. If he was cutting these sons off at the end of the previous chapter, he needs them again now. We're going to have to send them down there. And so he acts again as the clan chief. And he says to them, Why did you tell a man you have another brother? Why did you tell him? How did this happen? And then their answer again, the specifics are not in chapter 42. The man asked. He asked us about our kindred. That means he asked repeatedly. He probed about our kindred, saying, Is your father alive? Do you have another brother? So we told him. Well, that's not what we find in chapter 42. We find that he accused them of being spies, which they reported to their father previously. But now, it's when he says, Joseph accuses them of being spies, they just say, we're not spies, we're all sons of a single man, we're honest. And he said, no, you're spies. And they said, look, your servants are twelve, we're brothers, sons of a single man. The youngest is with our brother now, one is no more. That's it. They volunteer the fact that they have this youngest brother. Joseph doesn't ask them about it that is recorded, nor does Joseph ask about their father. But now they say, the man asked, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? Well, what do we do with that? Do we say that this is evidence of a contradiction in the text? This is evidence of two sources? 
behind this text, two versions of this that floated around in Israel, and then the moron redactor stuck them together here in Genesis, not realizing that there was a contradiction between the two that anybody, any liberal could see? No, that's not the case. Either the conversations went longer than they're recorded, and as a matter of fact, Joseph did ask about the father, and he did say, when they said we have another brother at some point, well, he asked, did you have another brother, wondering if they would admit to Joseph? Look back at Genesis 42. See, we could insert these questions in here. In Genesis 42, verse 10, or 9, Joseph was reminded of the dreams he dreamt of them, and he said to them, you guys are spies. It's to see the nakedness of the land that you've come. They said to him, No, my Lord, rather your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of a single man. We're honest. We've never been spies. And he said to them, Really? Well, how is your father? Do you have another brother? In other words, he wants to remind them of Joseph. Remember, Joseph does not know that Benjamin exists. So if he says, Do you have another brother? He's really seeking to remind them about himself. Do you have another brother? Verse 13, they said, your servants are twelve. We are brothers, sons of a single man. The youngest is with our father now, and one is no more. That's more of an answer than Joseph expected to get. They might have said, yeah, we had another brother, but he's dead. But now they say, we had another brother, and he's dead, and there's another one, too, who's real young and who's back behind. That's when Joseph learns about Benjamin. So it's easy to see that this conversation might have happened, It's just not recorded in chapter 42 because that's not the purpose of the text at that point. And all the Holy Spirit is doing now by recording this part of this conversation is to tell us that Joseph did ask these questions, which I think is the case. Or some people say that the brothers are just trying to conceal the fact that they volunteered this information. You know, they're trying to say that they were pushed into doing so. But that doesn't make any sense. And I know this is boring. I probably shouldn't have even gotten into this. But at the end of chapter 42, when they come back to their father, they report to him that they volunteered this information. Chapter 42, verse 30, they say to Jacob, The man, the master of the land, spoke harshly with us. He took us for those that spy on the land, and we said to him, We're honest, we've never been spies. We're twelve brothers all, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. So they've already told Jacob that they volunteered this information. So I think what they're doing now is saying, look, this conversation went on longer than we reported to you before. The man asked, he asked about us. The duplication of the verb is for emphasis. He kept on asking about this. He probed into us on this. He said, you really have a father. Is your father still alive? How is he? So you have another brother, huh? A younger one as well? One is dead? What is this? Tell me more. He asked and asked and asked and asked and asked about it. So they're telling Jacob, look, this guy was really interested. And we can't just go back to Egypt and assume that he's not interested and he'll forget who we are or anything. He was real interested. We don't know why, but he was real interested in our situation here. And he was real insistent that Benjamin come back with us. He warned us. Yes, warned us. Verse 3. He kept warning us over and over again, you're not going to see my face unless Benjamin comes with you. I think this is all very believable. I don't think these brothers are exaggerating or lying. They're just telling us more. They're telling us that their conversations with Joseph were a lot longer than they are recorded in Genesis 42. And we can be sure that this conversation with Jacob lasted a long time too. 
Jacob didn't say just once, why did you deal so ill with me by telling the men you have another brother? And they said these simple sentences. This is an hours long conversation. It's condensed here. This is the essence of it, and this is what the Spirit wants us to know about. So, again, this is part of showing that you can't evade this man. There's no way we're going to get around these demands. It have to be met head on. That's kind of the way we are. I mean, if we've done something wrong, we'd rather kind of skirt around it and let bygones be bygones and forget the past and all this. But in order for healing to take place, it's got to be confronted head on. And that's what we are being told here. We can't get around this. So Judah adds to what the brothers say. The brothers explain that the man is most insistent on seeing Benjamin. And then Judah makes his offer. And he says to Israel, his father, and I think the use of Israel here is significant because it's repentance on the part of the sons that is going to reconstitute Israel as a community which has been broken as a result of the sins of all these sons. It's been broken over and over again. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me that we may arise and go, that we may live and not die. There's that phrase, live and not die, which occurs throughout both of these stories, the previous one and this one, life and death, is the issue. Live and not die. And as I pointed out to you last time, at the end of this, Jacob dies and comes to life again. When Jacob heard, when they came back, let's just read it again. When they told him, saying Joseph is still alive, his heart failed. He had a heart attack. Not really, literally, but this is death. And then, when he saw that this was true, their father's spirit came to life. So, this is all major theme here. Death and resurrection, a new birth. And Judah says, we've got to do this so that we live and not die. We're going to have to appeal to the man in Egypt for life. And that's a trick, you see. Part of what Joseph said to them last time they went down there was that Elohim would make a way for them to live and not die. They can't look to Joseph or Pharaoh for life. They have to look to God for life. And they don't understand that completely. They've just gone down there appealing for bread to this man. Well, what do you do? If you start off the day by saying to God, give us this day our daily bread, then it's okay to go to the store and buy some. If you say to God, give us this day our daily bread, then it's okay to go to a charity and ask for a free loaf of bread if you're poor. As long as you know that you're asking God first and ultimately it comes from God. But if you don't do that, then it's idolatry. If you assume that God has nothing to do with it, then you're looking the wrong way. And we saw in the last story, they go down there to Egypt, appealing to Joseph and Pharaoh for bread, and they get thrown in prison. And then Joseph says, I fear God, and if you fear God, you can live and not die, and you'll get bread. But this is exactly what's going to happen again in this story. They're going to go down there looking to Joseph for bread, and they're going to be told that bread comes from God. Just as the famine came from God, so bread came from God. So they have to be brought to a fuller awareness of reality. Just as Pharaoh did. Joseph had to go before Pharaoh and say, Elohim's in charge of everything. Your gods are not. 
The sun plays its part and the Nile plays its part, but they're not the ultimate powers. God is behind these other powers, and he's the one you need to deal with. And the brothers need to learn the same thing, something we always need to learn. This is in theology called the distinction between proximate and ultimate causes. A proximate cause is a near cause. An ultimate cause is how God causes everything. So if I drop this watch and you watch it fall, the near cause, proximate means near, the near cause of this watch going down is gravity, what we call gravitational attraction. So this watch goes down because that's caused by gravity. But what's the ultimate cause? The ultimate cause is that God created a universe that has gravity in it. The ultimate cause is that God is always actively working everything in the world, and God caused this watch to go down. Well, what do you worship? They're both equal causes. It's true that if you want good crops in Egypt, you need the sun and you need the Nile. It's got to flood and make mud. Then the sun has to shine, and then the crops come. These are proximate causes. And it's perfectly valid to take them into account, to know when to plow, to plant the seed at the right time, to do all this stuff. But is that the ultimate cause? Do you worship these near causes? No. You have to transfer your worship to the ultimate cause, which is God. And it's the same thing here. Yeah, if you want bread, you're going to have to go to Joseph, and Joseph's going to have to give it to you. Yeah, that's quite true. That's your proximate cause. We don't set that aside. But the ultimate cause is God. And you know how people do this. You run into people who say, well, I don't have any bread, but I'm not going to ask for any because I've asked God, and now I'll just wait for it to drop out of the sky. Well, that's ignoring the proximate near causes. No, you've got to go out and earn some money and buy bread. Or if you can't, you've got to go and ask somebody for it. You've got to do some things. And you've got other people who say, all that matters is for me to make money and buy bread. I don't need to ask God for it. Nope, that's ignoring the ultimate cause. It's a matter of having these things in their right relationship, and that's part of what's going on here. So they have to learn who to ask for bread. Now we come to what is, in a way, the beginning of the turning point in this story in 9 and 10, which I've mentioned before, but now we're here, so let's talk about it again for a second. Judah says, I will act as Benjamin's pledge. At my hand you may seek him. Remember, Reuben offered his own sons. Well, that's nothing. It's not the same as offering yourself, although, of course, it would be terribly painful. But what's the point of that? Judah says, I will be a pledge. If I don't bring him back to you and set him in your presence, I'll be liable to sin against you for all the days to come. Now, that's kind of vague. But what it means is, I'll be in your hands. You can do anything you want. I'll be guilty. And guilty, you can put me to death. Guilty, you can make me be a slave. Whatever. I will bear the burden. I will take the guilt. I'll be the substitute. Now that's the start of it. And when push comes to shove, will he actually offer himself for Benjamin? And the answer is yes, he does. So this is the beginning of the turning point in this story. And why Judah is fit to be a king. Because in the Bible, the essence of kingship is to die for your people. Our shorter catechism says, 
how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And it says he executes the office of a priest by dying for his people. And then our catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it says he executes the office of a king by ruling his people. That's not correct. A priest does not die for people in the Bible. The king dies for people in the Bible. It's not the priest who's called to die. The priest offers sacrifices. And there's a sense in which the priests die, but not like the king does. And if you look at Jesus himself, how does he die? The sign on the cross does not say Jesus of Nazareth, high priest of the Jews. It says king. He comes to Jerusalem. He's proclaimed king on Palm Sunday. He's put on trial as a king. He's crowned and robed by the Romans as a king. He's crucified as a king. And on the cross, he rules as a king. And Jesus says, those who would be great must be least of all. If you want to rule, you have to die. The king dies for his people. That's what Saul refused to do, and that's what David did. The king puts himself at risk for his people. So, all of this, not saying the catechism is completely wrong, but it could use some improvement here, because kingship means being willing to die. And Judah is headed for kingship here. Because at the end of this story, remember, Jacob says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah is the one who is going to earn the right to be a king. Why? By being willing to die for someone else. That's how we become kings. That's how we live as kings. Once you become a king, you have to be willing to die for your people. A priest doesn't have any people. A king has people. And so, if you're going to die for others, if you're going to die for your people, you have to be a king. This kingship notion is coming in here. Why? Because we're moving from a few individuals into a nation. Remember, this whole narrative has moved us from Jacob, the individual man, to now Israel, the captain of a clan of people. And we have all this brother-brother strife. And how do you correct all the societal problems that come when you have a bunch of people? You have to have law, and you have to have a king. Joseph is, in a sense, a king. Judah is going to be the king. Moses is going to be the king. Somebody has to be in charge. Not just a father, but somebody bigger than that. And you have to have law. And so everything is being set up here along these lines. And here is part of it. Judah is a fit king because he's willing to die for others. Even in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about Jesus dying, does Jesus die for us as Aaron, the high priest? No. Jesus dies for us as Melchizedek, who is priest and king. So, the king being willing to die, the king dying for his people, that's major themes, kind of not very well noticed. But we need to at least notice it here, because that's how Judah becomes king, by being willing to die for Benjamin. All right. Anybody want to ask anything about this section before we move on? I mean, I don't know if it's complicated, but... Uh-huh. Tangential, Bob? No. You can ask it. You point out that in first eight verses, you have seven words that constitute a pattern. And the yeah. pattern of seven is often the pattern. Yeah. In your judgment, having studied this awful lot, do you come up with the conclusion that the human authors 
were preconceiving a design in order to do this, or rather that as they wrote, the Spirit of God was putting the design in there, and they probably didn't even realize the chiasms they were using or the symbolic use of numbers or whatever. So how do you judge the involvement of a human in that kind of thing? Well, you see, Bob, it's kind of like proximate and ultimate cause. But the question is, when a key word occurs seven times or we have an intricate chiastic structure, how much was the human author aware of this? And how much of it was that they wrote this and the Holy Spirit superintended it and they weren't aware of it? Well, I don't doubt that there are many things in the text that the Holy Spirit superintends that they are not aware of, especially as regards types that are explained later on prophetically. But in terms of literary structure, I think that they did know what they were doing because we teach everybody to read, which means we water down what teaching how to read and write means because we teach everybody how to do it. But scribes in the ancient world were kind of like nuclear physicists. There weren't that many. They were very skilled at writing. And this isn't just in the Bible. Other ancient literature shows these same kinds of things. Not to the wonderful extent the Bible does. But Plato, of course, was a genius. Plato wanted to write for the theater, and he decided he would write these theatrical dialogues instead. I mean, that's why they're dialogues, because he really wanted to write tragedies. But his writings are full of all these kinds of literary devices. So I think they knew what they were doing. They took their time with it. There's also the fact that paper or tablets are in short supply. In all of these early languages, you don't write the vowels. You just write a string of consonants. You don't put spaces between words because they're going to be read out loud anyway. You have to have ways of writing that communicate a lot in a very brief way. You don't have the luxury of going on and on and on. So these are reasons why I think we can be sure that the authors of the Bible were very well aware of these literary structures, repetitions of words, numbers and things like that, although they probably didn't see all of them. Jim, I think I can give you an illustration in the back of what you're saying. From what scholars tell us, and I think, and I think it's true, the book of Psalms, it's pretty obvious that you have that divided up in five different books. And then when you begin to look at different Psalms, it's obvious that you have tremendous organization. For example, I'm trying to think what Psalm it is, either 150 or one of them, where the Psalm, every stanza in it starts with a letter of a Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. Psalm 19, I think it is. Well, well there's about eight of them to do that. So highly organized at it that it is obvious that somebody had to devote an awful lot of time to that. Yeah. So that's the quick answer. On the other hand, whoever wrote, assuming Joseph or Moses or whoever finished up the story of Joseph in prison, they would have thought, Yes, Joseph being thrown into a pit, Joseph being thrown down into prison, that's like death. And while he's undergoing this death experience, there's two malefactors with him, one of whom is saved and ascends back to Pharaoh's throne and one of whom dies. Well, they would have had no clue that that would happen again at the cross. With a twist, that Joseph is the one who asked the cupbearer, 
remember me when you come back to Pharaoh, and it's the other way around on the cross. See, they would not have been able to know the prophetic typological side of it. But for the rest, the literary side, yeah, I think we have to assume that they did take a lot of time with this stuff. And they were used to it, and they were trained at it. We're just not. Of course, we get trained at it. I mean, I've gotten to where I'm a little bit better than I certainly was 20 years ago. and I'm sure you all are. You're starting to look for these things and notice them too. Now, for instance, if you were at home looking at this in verses 3 to 7, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you wish to send our brother with us, we will go down. You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Why did you tell a man you have another brother? Do you have another brother? Bring your brother down. Probably after listening to me teach for the last several years, you might think to yourself quite independently of me, well, now look at that. This word brother is repeated over and over again here. And you might say, I wonder how many times it is. And you start counting them up. You say, six times, huh? Well, hmm. Then you notice that the word lad is used. The word Benjamin is never used. So you might think, well, this is probably significant. Either six times or seven times. You begin to pick up on these things and you begin to think the way the writers thought. But yeah, they thought this way. I think you're saying that the care with which a person would write poetry goes into the writing of America as well. Yeah. The Bible is written in prosody. It's in between. That's why it's nice to have it lined out like this to where you can see that John chapter 1 is always a great example. It's almost a poem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So... Yeah, it's carefully done. Uh huh. Was there a sense in which Joseph died for the brothers too, but his wasn't voluntary? Yeah, Joseph died for the brothers as well, but his wasn't voluntary. So he's not the fullest example of a king in this narrative. Do you think? That, I guess the author shows that, that God was a, he was a king, and not man. It's not up to how good you are; it's up to what God wants to do. Yeah. Well, Joseph does voluntarily go into prison in the sense that he refuses to sin with Potiphar's wife. So, I mean, I just think we have to see that all of these are partial, and when Jesus comes, they're in their fullness. Hebrews chapter 1, interesting opening verses say, God partially revealed things, that is, in various parts. So you put them all together and you get the full revelation. But, yeah, in different ways, Joseph and Judah are both kings. But Judah is the larger example because when we get down to the prophecy at the end, it's Judah and not Joseph who is said to carry the kingship in Israel. So, uh uh-huh. Jim, it's interesting to me of how many individuals or things throughout the Old Testament in some way are a picture of Christ, are connected with Christ in some way. You know, not just these main ones we think of, but there's an awful lot of these, it seems like, throughout the Old Testament. And an observation uh, that I don't, that I made or even came across it somewhere was if that is true, it would almost mean you'd have to come to the conclusion that God is in control of history. Making these things work out this way, it's not like it's artificial, but 
how could you talk about something in the Old Testament being a type of Jesus Christ if God is not the one who is controlling and makes it all work out mm-hmm. in sovereign operation? Otherwise, it would just be a coincidence. Yeah, quite true. The Bible's full of things that couldn't be there by accident. And you get 153 fish, right, at the end of the Gospel of John. They cast a net and they get 153 fish. And people always want to know, why is that? You pick up some commentators and they say, well, that's just how many they got. Well, the Holy Spirit could just as easily have said, they got a lot of fish. But he doesn't. He says 153. Now, why does he say 153? What is 153? You'll never guess what it is because you don't know. You'll never guess, so they don't teach you this in school. You have to think like an ancient person and know what 153 is. I'll tell you. Augustine pointed this out. and It depends on whether you are willing to accept number symbolism in the Bible, but 153 is the triangular of the number 17. If you start off with 17, and then 16, and then 15, and then 14, 13... 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. You have the triangular of the number 17. There's 17 on a side in a triangle. The number 666 is the triangular of 36. Well, what is 17? 17 is 10 plus 7. Both very significant numbers. And this is a number that occurs in the Psalms a lot. Plus, these two numbers are related. 10 is 2 times 5. And 7 is 2 plus 5. Five, just as 12 is 3 times 4, and 7 is 3 plus 4. Now, we've just got it in our minds that God wouldn't do this, but He does. And they're fish, they're Gentiles, but this number structure is here. That doesn't explain all of it and why it's there, but these are significant numbers. 10 and 7, 17, number 17 occurs a lot in the Bible as a combination of 10 and 7. And here we have 17 raised to a certain kind of power. It's one that we don't study in math anymore. We're used to multiplication and factoring and all these other things, but we don't teach about triangulation very often. How many of you ever heard of triangular numbers? See? In the ancient world, they knew about triangular numbers. See? How's it tied with 153? This adds to 153. 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 plus 13 all the way down to 1 adds to 153. So, I didn't write the Bible. There it is. Is there any theological significance to this triangulation? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that behind it is 10 plus 7. But exactly why, I'm not sure. Then you can read the commentaries on that. The ones that take it seriously. I'll show you another example. Jeff Myers preached on this while I was there, just for fun. It's stuff that I think would have to have been understood by the author, but we don't pick up. In John 5, you remember this story in John 5? It says there was a sheep pool, a pool for sheep, having five porticos, and there was water there, and there were a multitude of sick, blind, and lame, and withered people hanging around it, because every now and then an angel would come and trouble the waters, and whoever got in the waters first would be healed. And it said a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness, and then Jesus heals him. So Jesus is like the angel who heals one person at a time, and Jesus heals him. It was on the Sabbath, and 
The Jews jumped on this guy and said, It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath, which Jesus had told them to do. And they attack him and cause a bunch of trouble for him on the Sabbath. Now, the question is, exegetically, it says he'd been there 38 years. Now, you can pick up X number of commentaries to say, well, that's just how many years he happened to be there. That's it. Well, no, of course that's how many years he happened to be there, but why didn't the Holy Spirit say he'd been there for many years? Unless you do something with the 38, you're not paying attention to the text. But John intends for you to take 38 seriously. Why? What is 38? What are 38 years? Well, they wandered 38 years in the wilderness. That's right. They wandered 38 years in the wilderness, and then they came into the promised land. And what does the book of Hebrews say that means? When you enter the promised land, you enter into Sabbath rest. This was on a Sabbath. This man enters into Sabbath rest. And when you came into the promised land, who did you meet? Canaanites, who tried to keep you out. What does this man meet as soon as he gets healed on the Sabbath? Pharisees, who are persecuting him and trying to keep him out. You see, John has quite deliberately set this up. But if you don't pay attention to that number, you're not going to get that. So, I think John knew what he was doing. Behind that's the Holy Spirit. But we just have to uncover it. They took a lot of time to write this. They were very well trained. And they had a good idea of what they were trying to get across. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.